Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. You can find it on page 976 in the Bibles that are provided in the chairs, 976, 977, if you don't have one with you. We're just looking at three verses today, Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, which is three times more than we looked at last week. So that's progress, right? Now, I, I want to start out by asking you a question. What does the gospel have to do with your relationships? What is the fact that God took on flesh, became a man, lived a perfectly obedient life, laid down that life as a sacrifice to substitute for your sin, for my sin, so that by turning away from our sin and following after Christ, we might be eternally reconciled to God. What does that have to do with your relationships with other people? Hopefully you're thinking to yourself, everything. Because it does. How could an inward change of the soul that that brings outward change in our lives not affect our relationships with other people? Well, how about this? What does your relationships with others have to do with the gospel? That's a lot harder question to answer, is it not? I'm guessing that some of you here might be thinking, well... Nothing, or very little. Others might be thinking, a lot, everything. But I'm guessing that most of us are somewhere in between. Am I right? It has something to do with our understanding of the gospel, our living out the gospel, but what exactly? It's sometimes hard to make heads or tails of. Well, do you know why that is? The reason why that question is so difficult is because we are naturally very individualistic. I think in terms of self. In our sin, we are prone to separate. We are prone to alienate, to create factions and divisions. And so we don't often think about how my personal and private faith has any bearing on yours or yours on mine because we see it as just that. It's my personal and private faith. We tend to view the gospel in terms of the vertical relationship dynamic between me and God, how God has entered into history and changed my life in some way, but not the horizontal dynamic of how the gospel not only changes my life, but changes your lives as well and changes our lives together. We treat community as if it's totally optional and personally defined. As long as I'm good with Jesus, then I can pick and choose who I want to interact with, whatever way I want to interact with Him, if I want to have community whatsoever. There's some major problems with that. Because the church was intended by God to make the gospel visible. Now, I hope you like geometry because I want to show you our Cartesian coordinate plane. Now, a few of you just got really excited. A few of you I completely lost. And most of you are like, what is he talking about? And you're trying to like scramble through all of the math notes from high school, you know, and just thinking, okay, angles and y-axis, x-axis, coordinates, so on and so forth. Well, hang with me here. I mean, Mr. LeBron would be so proud of me right now that I brought this up, okay? But here's why. Could you flip that? Okay. Now, this looks a lot better on the screen, so if you need to move closer to Rachel to see this better, then go ahead. I'm just kidding. Now, we often think about the gospel along that y-axis, that vertical axis, right? That, That relationship between me and God. We see sin as separation and alienation from God, which that actually says separated and alienated down there, okay? Um, We see our sin just in terms of separation and alienation from God, and as a result of that, we are godless, which is why godless is down at the bottom. You see God at the top. As we move downward in our sin, we move away from God. We try to live life without God. We are godless. But in faith in Christ, we move upward. We move towards God. We go closer, which is why God is at the top of that vertical axis. Does that make sense so far? This is primarily how we think about the gospel in in our response to it. But the problem is that it completely ignores that horizontal x axis. 
You were not created to live in a vacuum. Right? Unlike Adam, the first man ever created when he was all by, my, by himself, you are not the only person on the planet, though often we live that way. We were created not just to commune with God, but to live in community with one another. God himself said it was not good for man to be alone. Sin not only separates us from God, but it actually brings alienation and division, fear and animosity between me and everyone else. You think about your response to other people the last time you sinned. Did you run to them or did you hide? In our sin, we strive for independence, not just from God, but from others as well. In our sin, we not only hide from God, but from each other as well. And so on the x-axis, you see on the left side, we have isolated, isolation over there. But on the positive right side, you have community. Now, I have a couple of arrows here, if you want to click forward. These you can see a little bit better than that before. That downward diagonal arrow is sin. Sin not only leads to separation and alienation from God, but from others as well. And you can see that there in quadrant three, though you can't really read it. It says separated and alienated. Quadrant three is right down there, the lower left. The upward diagonal arrow is faith in Christ. Faith not only results in reconciliation and love and intimacy with God, but also with each other as well. We live in the community of faith. We thrive in the community of faith as we grow in faith. The Christian life is not lived out and matured in isolation, but in community. And that's why quadrant one up here to the top right represents the Christian life together. Often we think about growth in the Christian life in terms of quadrant two over here to the top left, me and Jesus. Relationship to God, but not to others. And, you know, that's fine if you're on a spiritual prayer retreat in the mountains 50 miles from the nearest person, but you don't live there, right? You live in dynamic relationship with other people. And the gospel is meant to come to bear on that. God intended our faith to grow as we live in the messiness of community. Now, quadrant four down here, we haven't talked about it yet, the lower right This is trying to seek community or identity in relationships, whether that be with a spouse or a boyfriend or an organization, a group of people, some type of subculture apart from God. Basically, God doesn't come to bear in that relationship, in that dynamic, in that group setting. Now, just because you're a Christian, it doesn't mean that you automatically live in quadrant one up here in the Christian life together. Because far too often, the lives of many professing believers in Christ are defined by me and Jesus, or by relationship identity, or even separation and alienation. And the further we get away from quadrant one of that living the Christian life together in faith, the further and further we move into sin. That's why they're red and you can't really see it, but there's a gradient. It gets darker as you move away from that top right quadrant. God did not intend for you to go through life alone. And God did not intend for you to live your life without Him. But so often... We think of these things as independent. And then I can have certain areas of my life in which God does not need to be a part of it. This group of people, this subculture, whatever it might be, it can be godless. That's fine. Or we think that my spiritual life is defined by me and God alone, and it has no implication on the way I treat my kids or the way I live with my neighbors or the way I interact with coworkers. Now, this is huge. And so often we get this wrong. Now so far in Ephesians, Paul has clearly laid out the vertical theology of how we are reconciled to God, what God has done in us to change us, to redeem us, to restore us to himself. And now he is going to spend the rest of Ephesians, the lion's share of Ephesians, explaining how we are to live up there in quadrant one. 
He's encouraging us toward God and towards the community by faith. He's exhorting us away from godlessness, away from separation, away from alienation, away from isolation. And this is particularly true in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, these, this passage that we're going to look at for the next three sermons. You see, God has given us new life in Christ. And He's given us new life in Christ so that it might lead to new living in Christ. If He has changed us here, He will change us here. In Christ, you are a new creation. A new human. And as God regenerates, as He saves, as He changes the hearts of those whom He now calls sons and daughters, He does not create for Himself new persons, but a new people, a new humanity, a new society, a new culture that is defined by their relationship to Christ, that they are in Christ, they are with Christ, they are together in Christ. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to be united in Christ. It's not just me and Jesus. It's us and Christ. And so for the next three sermons at Ephesians, we're going to look specifically at this new humanity that God is creating from those who He calls to live this Christian faith out together. This is the church, the gospel made visible. That those who were once separated and alienated, those who lived in hostility and enmity toward one another, building these walls of division and hiddenness in their sin, God has saved them. He has changed them. He has united them in Christ. And they look different than the world. And so this morning in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, we will see that in Christ, those who were once far off have been brought near. In Christ, those who were once far off have been brought near. And I don't mean just brought near to God, but brought near to one another. So let's read the text. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, page 976, 977 in the Bibles and the chairs. He says, therefore, remember that at that time, you Gentiles called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh with hands. Remember that at that time, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul wants us to love and appreciate Christ for all that he has done, to truly see the gravity of our sin and our sinful, miserable state apart from him, and to glory in our salvation in all facets, including our relationships with other people. He wants us to praise Christ for his work to bring us near to God and to each other. And so he does so in the same way that he did in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, by first focusing on who we were apart from Christ, and then by focusing on what we've become by God's grace, what God has made us into, what God is making us into. And so that's the the division that we see in this text. This is the way we're going to present it this morning. So first in verses 11 and 12, Paul reminds us that we were all once far off. This sermon is going to be sort of the background sermon, the big picture sermon that's going to set up the next two. So I've got to talk a lot about biblical history. I've got to talk a lot about uh, what the Old Testament said as far as these distinctions, and hopefully it'll bring clarity as far as how that draws us together. You see, this might surprise you, but we all have one story. You and I, everyone in this room, we, we, we share one story. There's one story of humanity. And that story does not start with alienation and separation. It doesn't start in terms of division by race, ethnicity, geography, by age, or any number of of facets that we would think of. That 
story, the biblical story, our history begins with creation. That after God created the universe, the sun, moon, and stars, the planets, land, water, sky, birds, fish, animals, the last thing God created was a man named Adam. He created Adam in his image. He created Adam to have fellowship with God. Not because God was lonely or needed him. God was the triune God who existed in perfect unity, in perfect community before there was anything. No, God created man for the purpose that man might delight in God as he reflected the very nature and character of God and enjoyed all the things that God had made. It was God and not man that said it was not good for man to be alone. I will create a helper suited for him. It was God who made woman and gave her to man. It was God who performed that first marriage ceremony to unite them in intimacy, who made them one flesh. It was God who set up community, perfect community, vulnerable, intimate, naked, and unashamed community. Don't read too much into that. Okay? They were absolutely vulnerable. They knew each other. They lived in perfect fellowship. No animosity, no hostility, no division whatsoever. They were one. They were a community under, united under God. But unfortunately, man was not content to remain in this state of communion with God or with each other. Adam and Eve sought independence from God. They wanted to be like God. And so they rebelled against Him and they brought separation and alienation and condemnation, not just upon themselves, but upon the entire human race. At once, their eyes were opened from their sin. And what do they do? They separated. They hid. In animosity and hostility, they begin to blame other people rather than taking personal responsibility for what they'd done. Instead of in repentance and faith pleading for God for mercy, they hardened their hearts against God and hardened their hearts against one another. They created division and hostility and alienation. And as you follow the story of humanity's rebellion against God, you see just how bad our sin and separation really is. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Just one generation later, Adam and Eve's son, Cain, kills their other son, Abel, at a worship service. Noah proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that that whole me and Jesus thing doesn't really work. At the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, you see that the people in their own sin and wickedness tried to set up for themselves a relational identity, a community apart from God, and it didn't get well, did it? It went horrible. It led to further alienation and separation and hostility and confusion and dismay and all sorts of things as as they were dispersed throughout the land. Their tongues were confused. Animosity, hatred, elitism, all of that came with the fall. And as you go on, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Further separation, further alienation, all because of sin. As the story of humanity unfolds, we see sin lead into deeper division and hostility along lines of race and ethnicity, religion, social class, politics, gender, age, and any number of social or cultural preferences. Division, separation, pride, animosity, racism, elitism, hatred, bigotry, and self-centeredness. This is who we all were by nature. All of us. Everyone in the room. And we don't have to look far to see that that's the way we're living. Look at the world around us. Look at our own hearts. Apart from Christ, we were not only separated and alienated from God, but also from each other. 
Not only were we dead in our sin and trespasses, enslaved to the world, the devil, and our own sinful flesh, and condemned under God's just and holy wrath, but at that time we erected barriers of strife and partition between me and everyone else. This passage that we're dealing with this morning, Paul is dealing with a particular issue of the racial and cultural division between Jew and Gentile. We see it right there in verse 11. Now, it's difficult for us as westernized American individualists to really understand how deep-seated the hostility and separation that existed in Paul's day between Jew and Gentile. We can't really fathom it. We're far too materialistic and individualistic. We're far too self-centered and egocentric to really grasp the corporate nature of this long-standing separation. I mean, the best we can do is read history, watch documentaries of, of various events, things like the Civil Rights Movement or the Civil War, maybe studying the rise of communism or the rise of the Nazi Party. Only then can we begin to gain an understanding of the solidarity of the corporate separation that existed here, the separation that had been in place for over 1,500 years. Deep-seated tradition. The Jews, according to the Old Testament, were God's chosen people. The one true and living God selected them from among the nations. God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not all of their neighbors. It was God who revealed himself to them. It was God who made his covenant promises to them and to their offspring. It was God who supernaturally intervened throughout the course of history to deliver them from their enemies, from the Gentile nations around them. It was God who saved them to be his people, to be his kingdom. God had promised to send the Messiah, the Christ, to be their king, to victoriously judge all Gentiles, and to reconcile Israel back to that relationship that Adam and Eve had with God in the garden. In their eyes, there were only two kinds of people. There were Jews, and there was everybody else. If you were not a Jew, then you were a Gentile. Now, unless I'm mistaken here, everybody in this room is not a Jew. (laughs) We're all Gentiles here. The Gentiles, according to the Old Testament, were given no promises from God. Gentiles were the trash that God didn't choose for himself. Gentiles, they were the tools that Satan used to defile the Jews and to tempt them to worship false gods. The Gentiles, they had no hope for salvation. They were fodder. They were filth. They were doomed to destruction. They were kindling and nothing more. The outward sign that was given to separate Jew from Gentile was circumcision. It was a symbol basically saying if you were circumcised, you were from the line of Abraham, then you were a Jew. Anyone else, not a Jew. I don't need to explain to you what circumcision is, right? We're, okay, you can go look it up. Aaron can draw you a picture. To be a circumcised child of Abraham meant that you were in. You were saved. You were God's chosen. And though there were all sorts of legal demands and and moral demands that were placed upon Jews, really it boiled down to if you were circumcised, if you were a child of Abraham, then you were in. You were saved. You were God's chosen. In the eyes of Jews, it didn't really matter how you lived or what you did. I mean, this is racism and bigotry to its core. Their elitism wasn't shown in their enslavement of the Gentiles because they were a small nation. They got whooped up on all the time. But their elitism was shown in their condemnation, in their disdain, in their apathetic indifference towards anyone who is not like them, who is not a Jew. To be called, as Paul says in verse 11, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that's a derogative term. Basically, it means to say that you don't have a sign of the covenant people of God. Well, then you're trash. You're filth. You're a whore. You don't really matter. 
to be a Gentile in the eyes of a Jew was reason enough to run them down. Are you getting a picture of the animosity and alienation and division that existed between Jew and Gentile? Do I need to keep going? But Paul says something really profound there in verse 11. Paul says that circumcision was simply made in the flesh with hands. It's ineffective. It's ultimately, it means nothing. It's a cut in the flesh and nothing more. Now that doesn't sound all that profound, but until you dig deeper to what's really behind it. Because what Paul is really saying here is that it's made with hands. You see... Mankind has a tendency to worship what they make with their hands. In the Old Testament, God condemns his people and the nations for worshiping lifeless idols made with hands instead of following the one true and living God. In the Gospels, Jesus rebukes the religious leaders of the day for worshiping the temple made with hands rather than longing to be in God's glorious and eternal presence. And here... Paul says that circumcision is only made in the flesh with hands. It's not the work of God. It was only a symbol. It was meant to point to a greater reality, one that we all need for God to do a work in our hearts to change us. And we know this even from the Old Testament because Moses says in Deuteronomy 10 and Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 4, Paul says in Colossians 2 and Philippians 3 and Romans 2 that what's really needed here is a circumcision of the heart. Even when Moses gave the law a second time to the second generation of the Israelites, he says, guess what, you're not going to keep it. You need God to do a work in your heart. The physical sign means nothing unless God does a work in our hearts. The physical separation was signified by circumcision was merely outward. It means nothing in comparison to the real problem. And he talks about that real problem in verse 12. There's spiritual separation from God. Paul says, remember that at that time... You were separated from Christ. You were without Christ, the Messiah. The promise that God had made time and time again to the Jews to send this coming king, this Messiah, who would deliver them from their enemies, who would gain victory over all the Gentile nations and to judge them and to restore Israel, God's chosen people, to a right relationship with God while destroying all of the rest That promise was not for you. You were without Christ. You had no hope. Your future was one of eternal condemnation. That's what you had waiting for you. At that time, they believed that the Christ was only for Israel. It was only after Jesus came and revealed himself as the Christ that we came to understand truly that the promise was extended to the Gentiles as well. Now, there were plenty of pointers in the Old Testament, but it didn't really come to fruition until Jesus came. In addition to that, to being separated from the Messiah, Paul adds that they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel saying they were foreigners. They were not citizens of God's chosen nation. They were not part of God's community. Prior to the king coming and opening the gates, they were outside of the kingdom of God. To that, Paul adds that they were strangers to the covenants of promise. They had no knowledge of God's covenant-keeping love towards His people. They didn't have the revelation of God. God was not speaking to them as He was to the children of Abraham. They had no idea of all of the promises and promises, plural, that God has made. These covenants that God had made with His people to Abraham in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, to Isaac in Genesis 26, to Jacob in Genesis 28, to 
the nation of Israel in Exodus 24 and many other places and to David in 2 Samuel 7. They were lost on that. The covenant promises of God were not for them until Christ came and fulfilled God's promises by enacting a new and better covenant by His blood. The reality is this left the Gentiles without hope. There was no hope for them. Their future was the just and holy wrath of God. There was no salvation. There was no hope for them. Their end would be destruction, an eternity of miserable alienation and separation from God. They were not God's people. They were without God in the world. Now this is not to say that they didn't worship many gods, because they did, but they had no access to the one true and living God, the God of Israel. At that time, apart from Christ, they were God-forsaken in the midst of a dark and lost world. And all of their religious efforts meant nothing, no matter how sincere and devoted they were, because they did not know the one true and living God. Their worship was futile. Their attempts to buy God's favor through their good works only served to dishonor God because they did not really know Him. They were outsiders, doomed to eternal separation from God without any hope of reconciliation apart from Christ. This is who they were. They were once far off. Now, before we can look at the hope of this passage, I want to draw out two points of application. First of all, I hope that you can see from this text the idolatry that is associated with drawing physical lines of separation. It's merely made in the flesh with hands. To refuse, to reject to separate or alienate based upon anything physical is idolatrous. It is exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving the created rather than the creator who is blessed forever. This passage destroys the notion of racism and bigotry. It condemns all of those who would cast out the disabled, the marginalized, or the underprivileged. It is a rebuke to those who would separate based upon social class, or subculture, or age, or gender, or any other physical delineation. It is a slap in the face to anyone who would refuse anyone else based upon any type of physical appearance, whether that be the color of skin, the wrinkles on face, the dirt on hands, or the clothes on their backs. Tattooed or in a tie, pierced or in pleated skirts, it doesn't matter. All of it means nothing. It's purely in the flesh, made with hands. It only demonstrates the sinful love of self, not the love of Christ. It only shows how vain and self-righteous you are. If you were created by God, and we all were, we were all made in the image of God that is worthy of honor and respect no matter what we have done to that image. We all have the same source. We were all created in God's image. We've all sinned against God. And if there is anything physical that would keep you from having fellowship with another person, it is an idol. It is made with human hands. It means nothing, and it will be brought to nothing. If you find yourself reluctant to extend the love of Christ towards someone who is different from you, if you are selfishly refusing to take the gospel to someone because of fear that they're not like you, then you need to repent. 
You need to repent of your idolatrous love of self. Repent of your sinful desire to separate and alienate and follow after Christ. But get this, guys. Repentance is a gift of God. It is not something to bear in shame and in hiddenness. Repentance is a means of faith. It is a gift to us that we can repent. We should long to repent. And so examine your heart. How am I showing partiality to some? How am I neglecting others? Who am I associating with? Who am I refusing to associate with? God, forgive us for the ways that we show favor towards a particular type because I love what I see of myself in them rather than loving them because they were created in your image. Rather because we share the same fallen condition. We are one and the same. This great unifier has destroyed us over and over again. But we have one source and we've rebelled against it. We've hated it. We have ostracized one another. We've hated one another. We've lived for division and alienation and separation. It's the same condition. We are one. And we haven't even got to the glory of the gospel yet. The second point of application is just to remember. Remember who you were apart from Christ. This is speaking of a reality here. I don't care if you grew up in a Christian home and you accepted Christ when you were two years old and you prayed the sinner's prayer and you've been basically a good boy or girl your entire life. The reality is this text so clearly is demonstrated that you were separated from Christ. That you were once far off. That you were at one time dead in your sin. That you were once enslaved to the world, the devil, and your own sinful flesh. That you were really a child of wrath, separated, just like the rest of mankind. This passage tells us that at that time, you were separated from Christ. You did not have Him. Those promises were not for you. That you were alienated from God's kingdom. That you were strangers to the covenants of promise that God had made to deliver His people. They were not yours. You were hopeless. You were desperate. You were without God in the world. That is who each and every person was or is in this room. That is your true condition apart from Christ. You are hopeless and without God in a lost world. Friends, feel the weight of that. Think about that deeply. Remember that. Who you were by nature. We were created in the image of God. And we've all fallen from the image of God. And if you happen to be here and you're not a follower of Christ today, that's where you still are. This is your condition. Hopeless, helpless, and without God in the world. But we can praise God because the story doesn't end there. There is hope that those who were once far off, second, can be brought near. Though we were once separated and alienated without hope and without God in the world, now all of that has changed in light of Christ. Verse 13, But now, you, those of you who are in Christ, you were once far off, but you have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 11 began with a therefore. It's an inference. It's a conclusion. It says, Because of the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us in Christ, according to chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, a power that made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together with Him and seated us together with Him in the heavenly places, saving us by His grace, according to chapter 2, verse Verses 4 through 7. And because we are God's workmanship, according to chapter 2, verse 10, that despite our desperate state apart from Christ, God has brought us near by the blood of Christ. This is what God has done. He has done what you cannot do. God has reconciled you to Himself 
and to each other. That word there, have been brought near, it's passive, meaning you didn't do it. It was not your choice. It was not your volition. It was not your will that brought you near to God. It was God who has brought you near. Just as you were dead in your sin until God made you alive by His grace, so you were hopelessly far off until God brought you near by the blood of Christ. And God brought you near not just to Himself, but to each other. We know this from context, the wider context, but even here in this verse. Because you is plural. He's not speaking of you, Kyla. He's not speaking of you, Jason. It's you plural. That you all were once far off, but now in Christ you all have been brought near. This is not about God simply reconciling individuals to himself, that whole quadrant two, me and Jesus thing. But God has brought us near to each other. We were not only reconciled to him by the blood of Christ, but to one another as well. Those walls of division that we had erected in our sin have been removed, save one. Or maybe I should say, one has been raised. The only line of separation that exists in light of Christ is Christ. What matters now is whether or not you are inside in Christ or you are outside of Christ. Whether you have been saved by his blood or whether you are still hopelessly in your sin. Has the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ washed you in His blood? Are you cleansed? Are you forgiven? Are you saved? Have you been justified by His grace through faith as a gift? Are you united in Christ and with Christ? Are you continually living in the sphere of Christ? Do you receive grace and strength and nourishment and life in Christ as you are in daily fellowship, daily relationship with the one who saved you. These are the only distinctions that matter. Everything else is earthly and perishing. This one, whether or not you are in Christ or not, this one is eternal. This one is the only one that matters. If Christ has covered your sin by his blood, and if he has covered my sin by his blood, then we have been brought near by his blood. If you are in Christ and I am in Christ, then we are in Christ, and that is all that matters. Do you see that? Racial, political, cultural distinctions are removed. Segregation over age or gender or wealth or ethnicity or any personal preference that I might have in my foolishness is abolished. The blood of Christ has created one new culture, one new society, one new humanity that is united in Christ. And this new humanity is multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-generational, multi-class, multicolored, but monocultural. One new culture in Christ. Because regardless of your past, your history, your background, your personal preferences, you have been brought near. We have been brought near in Christ. He is the only distinction that matters. Are you in Christ or are you not in Christ? Have you been brought near by his blood or are you still far off? In the mercy, the wisdom and insight, in the lavish grace of God, he has set forth his purpose in Christ to unite all things in him, things in heaven and get this, things on earth. What does that mean for us? That means that that's not a future eternal destiny. Like one day, that's what it will be, but now we're just toughing it out as individuals all on our own until we get there. No, he's saying it's a present reality. 
That He is uniting all things on earth. And that means that the church is that manifest destiny. That we see it coming to fruition. That reality is being made real in our hearts and in our lives as we unite together as a church, making the gospel visible. Eternity doesn't begin when you die or when Jesus comes back. If you are in Christ, eternity is now. So stop living like it is. By turning away from your selfish attempts to separate and alienate yourself from God and others. Attempting to live as if this is my world and I am God. And by trusting in the perfect sacrifice of Christ for your sin, you can be reconciled to God and to one another. You can be united to Him in perfect fellowship, not only with God, but with His people for all eternity. That is the hope of the gospel. No more death. No more alienation and separation. No more animosity and hostility. No more division. No more wars. No more strife. No more condemnation. No more hopelessness. No more despair. No more floundering in the dark in a godless world in misery and despondency and in pain. The cross of Jesus Christ has removed all of that and God is in the process of bringing His people near, uniting them as one new humanity in Christ. That is the direction of the Gospel. The question is, is that the direction for your life? Are you heading in the same direction as the Gospel? If not, you need to re-examine your profession. Repent and follow. So how do we think about the implications for us? How are we then to live in light of this text? I could be here for weeks. I'm not kidding. I was telling guys beforehand, I could have preached a sermon on each little stanza, each little phrase. But the only reason I didn't is because where do you run into new sermon application questions for community groups? That's the only reason I spared you guys and only did three sermons. Well, generally, Paul's application to us is to remember. Right? That's the command that he gives right there in the text. Gives it twice. Remember. Remember who you truly were apart from Christ the depth of misery and alienation that our sin brings, but remember the glorious reconciliation that has occurred in Christ. Remember who you now are in Him. Remember what God is doing in Christ. Remember in such a way that it doesn't just stop at nice thoughts about the gospel but a changed life, changed heart, changed mind, changed direction in your life. Here are some ways remembering might practically look for us this morning. Remember, first of all, that you are no longer separated from Christ. You no longer have to live in this world without God. God has brought you near. If Christ has covered your sin, then there is nothing that needs to be repaid. There is not that distance. There is not that separation. You are not far off. You have been brought near by the work of Christ. Rest in that. Accept that. Delight in that. By grace, You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Live in your new identity that you have received in Christ. And if you came here this morning not knowing the hope of the gospel, you need not remain in separation and alienation in hopelessness, and without God in the world. Respond by turning away from your sin and receiving Christ by faith. 
Some of you may be here and you feel hopeless. You feel alienated and abandoned. Maybe you've professed faith in Christ, but it seems like God is some distant myth and you feel utterly alone. Well, do not despair. There is hope. Because Christ has welcomed you. And as Christ has welcomed you freely, apart from any past, apart from any condition, apart from any present state or circumstance, you do not need to feel alone. You are not alone. Find your soul's solution to the emptiness and hopelessness that you feel by coming to Christ. And in doing so, hopefully finding a welcoming community here as well. If that is you this morning, please talk to someone after the service. Just someone next to you, talk to me, talk to Jim, talk to Caleb. For some, remembering means changing the way that you relate to others around you. Perhaps you thought that Christianity was simply about me and Jesus. But you still live as an alien and as a stranger when it comes to other believers in Christ. Perhaps you separate yourself and alienate others because they're not like you. Or because you have some hidden sin that you can't release and so you cower and you divide and you create factions and you move away rather than toward. Perhaps for some of you, the idea of covenanting together in church membership seems too intrusive, too uncomfortable, too burdensome. And the thought of reflecting the covenant promises of God in a relationship with a bunch of sinners as you covenant to them in local church membership seems like foolishness, seems too difficult. And so you don't want to do it. Scary. Well, I have to tell you that if that is you this morning, then you have a deficient view of the gospel. You can't have Christ and not have his bride. You don't have the right to define Christianity on your own terms, what you are willing and what you're not willing to do. God does that. You can't define it by me and Jesus and think that as long as I fool myself into thinking that this vertical relationship is okay, it doesn't matter how I then live because the reality is if this is not right, then this is clearly not right. God intends for you to live in a gospel community the way that God defines it. Are there ways in which you need to submit to God's wise and perfect plan to draw you near to Him and others, knowing that He included the church in that process? Do you need to consider what it means to live in a gospel community? Do you need to commit to a local church? Are there ways in which you need to submit to the leadership that God has placed in your life, whether that be leaders in a local church or perhaps family members, you know, your, your parents or, or maybe your the your bosses, knowing that that horizontal relationship you have, the gospel has bearing on it, and it has bearing on your living out the gospel. Are there ways that you need to draw near to God and to others that require confession of sin, that require repentance, that require reconciliation? If you are refusing to do so in any way, you are showing that your desire is to live in sin and not in faith. If you are refusing God's intended plan of sanctification in your life, you're refusing to be brought near. And to refuse God's intention for His church is to continue to live apart from Christ. you see the bearing it has on the gospel? Do you see the bearing that it has on your life? One of the biggest reasons why we do this is because we still live as strangers to the covenants of promise. We know very little of God's nature, His character, His purposes, and His promises in the world. 
We doubt, we question God's wisdom in establishing the church as my means of growth because I don't spend time in the Word. God has given me these covenant promises for me to read and to learn and to study and to seek to know more about Him. But I refuse those things. I live a stranger. The reality is, the more you love God, or I'm sorry, the more you love God's Word, the more you'll love God and His people. So draw near to the promises of God. But the primary reason that Paul calls us to remember who we were, but what we have become, is so that we might praise Christ for the miraculous work that He has done in us to bring us from death to life, from darkness to light, from enemy to child, from outcast to citizen, from stranger to beloved. And as we remember that, may we not only draw near to God and to others, but may we also rejoice in that we have the opportunity to bring others near so that they too might see and rejoice in God's redemptive work of reconciliation as He destroys walls and barriers built up by our sin and replaces them with inroads and bridges of unity and love through Christ towards Him and towards others. Praise God that we get to participate in that. All because in Christ, those who were once far off have been brought near. Let's pray. Father God, we, we have to begin with confession. Father, we have divided. We have separated and alienated. We have created factions. We have lived in hatred and animosity and hostility and enmity towards you and towards others. Forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for our desire for independence from you and from others. But Lord, I pray that this passage would come to bear in our hearts and minds this morning so that we might not remain far off but realize the great and glorious gospel that brings us near, not just to you, but to each other. God, where there are ways in which our relationships are in strife and animosity, would you bring healing and restoration? Where there are those who live in hopelessness and despair and feel like they're going through life without you, may they realize what Christ has done to bring them near and that they are welcomed. May we no longer live as strangers to the covenants of promise, but realize that you have shown through the course of history that even in our rebellion, and even though you are a great and glorious and holy God who can have nothing to do with sin, that you have brought us near because you are faithful and because Christ's sacrifice is more than sufficient to forgive us of our sin and restore whatever broken relationship that we have. Because if you can restore our broken relationship with you, then you can restore any relationship that we might have. Father, make us a church that is united in the gospel, that makes the gospel visible in the fact that we are different in many ways, but we are united in Christ, and that means everything. May we not look at each other in terms of divisions over preferences or colors or any type of physical appearance, but may we love one another because we were created in the image of God, we were restored from our sinful and broken state, and that we see Christ in each other. Lord, I thank you for the ways that you have done that in Redeemer, but let us not be content to stay where we are. There's so much more for us. Lord, help us to delight in unity as it reflects 
the nature and character of the gospel and bring glory to your name as we live here in this present and fallen earth, awaiting the day but seeking redemption and bringing about redemption through our relationships to one another and to the world around us. Father, we know that this is impossible by our own efforts, and so we pray in confidence that Christ's work is sufficient, that your Holy Spirit is working powerfully, and that your word is sufficient for every task that you call us to do. And it's in Christ's name we pray.